Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's segment of the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policies Contours podcast series. Today, we'll be talking about the rising tide of authoritarianism on the Indian subcontinent, particularly in India and Pakistan. I'm joined today by two excellent guests who are experts on this topic. First, Dr. Sayed Muhammad Ali. Dr. Muhammad Ali is a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute, and he teaches at Georgetown and Johns Hopkins universities. He frequently provides expert testimony for South Asian asylum seekers to immigration courts in the United States and the United Kingdom. He also works with several think tanks in Washington, D.C., and he writes a weekly column for Express Tribune in Pakistan. I'm also joined by Shweta Krishnan. Shweta is a PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology here in Washington, D.C. at the George Washington University. Her research in Northeast India contributes to scholarship on religion, environment, and transnationalism. Muhammad Ali and Shweta, it's excellent to have you join us today. Muhammad Ali, I'd like to start off by asking you a broader question about how the history of the subcontinent and the post-colonial legacy has contributed to manifestations of authoritarianism that we are seeing today. I think it's uh, absolutely vital to take a long view. We see with increasing concern authoritarianism spreading and, and manifesting itself in different forms in the Indian subcontinent and beyond, particularly when it comes to India and Pakistan. While it seems to manifest in different forms, and I'm sure we're going to get into those different manifestations, they do share a common legacy. And this is a legacy that's also shared in the wider region, in Sri Lanka as well, and what is now Bangladesh. And that post-colonial legacy, and in fact, it has to do with the creation of uh, colonial structures of governance, right? And it's interesting to note how the Weberian model and other evolutions in thinking about governance and trying to make that participatory and away from monarchical hold in Europe were happening at the same time that the colonial administration also was contending with the reality of dealing with these different ethnicities and different cultures and uh, doing so in a manner which was largely extractive. As there was a a loosening and and an increased amount of accountability within Europe itself, and I mean, here I speak about Great Britain in particular, the institutions of a state that were being built in the colonial context were much more top-heavy and were top-heavy on purpose because their aim was resource extraction. I mean, we wouldn't have seen the Industrial Revolution taking off in mills and textile mills in Manchester dominating world trade if it wasn't for, for the cotton being produced in, uh, in India and, and, and elsewhere, uh, you know, with varied implications. So nonetheless, I mean, you had sociologists like Hamza Alvi coined this interesting term called the overdeveloped state. And that was a colonial legacy. 
So these were institutions of the state which were on purpose meant to be top heavy. The civil servant was not really a civil servant. His job was to be a master. So you had the magistrate who was judge, jury, and executioner. These kinds of institutional developments subsequently we saw manifested in the post-colonial state. And, you know, in that process of, of independence, we saw on the one side, in the case of India, uh, Gandhiji, for instance, he was able to articulate using Hindu mythology, for instance, like notions like Satyagra, right? Like the quest, this kind of mythological quest, right? For, for self-determination. And it resonated with Hindu mythology, but in the process, it created alienation. And of course, there was a lot more going on. And Gandhi was not the sole spokesman for Hindu nationalism, for Indian nationalism, I, I should say. In fact, at that time, I mean, even Muhammad Ali Jinnah was working in tandem with, right, like the Congress. And subsequently, it split. Now, when the Muslims felt underrepresented in their different ways of framing this, I mean, some say that they would have preferred to have been bigger fish in a smaller pond as opposed to small fish in a big pond, right? And that's why they opted for the creation of a separate homeland. But whatever the reasons for that bifurcation were, we saw in the case of Pakistan, you know, in the Pakistani uh, movement, was much more top-heavy in you know, that demand for independence was led by a leadership that, that did not quite tap into the, the public sentiment. And subsequent to that, then the, the creation of these institutions, I mean, be it the bureaucracy, be it this uh, burgeoning, well, this, the, the creation really of this bourgeoisie, if you will, the urban bourgeoisie, and then the rural the zimidars, they were all perpetuating and benefiting from this patronage-based system, which had, uh, which resonated with that earlier colonial model of working with the chief to rule a village, and so on and so forth. And the Pakistani state sort of emulated this model. And subsequently, we also started seeing a growing civil military imbalance. Uh, right, and, and the military was, and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy, largely fueled by this, you know, animosity with a much larger neighbor and exacerbated by colonial era disputes, uh, territorial disputes like Kashmir over, uh, took place with the partition, and it was a bloody partition at that, and a war in 48, a war in 65, a war in 71, that reinforced the need for Pakistan to have a very muscular uh, military. And that military subsequently began penetrating the political economy of the state as well. And ironically, this elite-led patronage-based system created a lot of resentment, not only amongst the not-haves across the country, but also within the, the different regions of the country. So Balochistan, for instance, and East Pakistan, because ironically, when Pakistan was created, it was this unique experiment where there were two distinct parts of Pakistan, East and West Pakistan, because it was Muslim majority areas divided by a huge country in the middle, which was India. Bangladesh was on one side of India, on the eastern side in Pakistan, the rest of Pakistan on the western side. And there was this brewing discontent, which 
actually disproved this idea of the two nation theory created on the basis of religion, because by 1971, Bangladesh on the basis of ethno-nationalist disgruntlement with this top-down state declared independence. And rather than the state then looking inward and trying to create a more egalitarian or more representative state double down on this post-colonial legacy and the need for the army to be even more muscular and to take up more resources. That's a legacy that in various shapes and forms Pakistan is still contending with today. Well, thank you very much, Muhammad Ali, for that very interesting sweep through how the history of the colonial legacy in Pakistan in particular shapes authoritarianism today. Now, Shweta, I'd like to turn to you to give us some added perspective on this and to help us understand even more completely the way that the past continues to resonate and rhyme in the Indian subcontinent. Thank you for that question, and thank you for having me here. So since we're taking a long durée perspective on authoritarianism in South Asia today, I think alongside everything that Muhammad Ali just underlined for us, something that I would like to add, and I think he already said this, and I'm possibly just marking it as something we need to pay specific attention to, is the ways in which the presence of European powers in South Asia over a long duration of time changes the way in which South Asians come to know themselves. So there's a lot of knowledge production that happens, a lot of shifts in the ways in which people come to know themselves, what they sort of identify themselves as. So these categories of identification that stem with colonial governance and is actually at a particular point in time, more or less created for the ease of colonial governance, become part of that post-colonial legacy. So today's authoritarianism in South Asia is also based very much on this sort of form of identity politics, what religion somebody belongs to, what ethnicity somebody belongs to, what nationalist identity somebody has, where a nation ends, where another one begins, what languages do people speak. So the ways of categorization of people, of land, and all of these things also emerged with some of these colonial regimes that Muhammad Ali already spoke about, right? And so the bureaucracy, the police, the military, and all these institutions that he was sort of demarcating for us, they derive on this knowledge production that happens. Something that I would like to point to here is that the authoritarianism in South Asia today derives on the colonial legacy in two ways. On the first hand, you have these categories that I was just underlining, which changes the way in which Europe comes to know South Asia and South Asia comes to know itself and the ways in which it is useful for Europe, as I was saying. But on the other hand, the anti-colonial movements that come up at this time also sort of draw on these very same knowledges of who is Hindu, who is Muslim. And so I think what we see today, movements that are stemming from the ways in which secular institutions are being pushed to their maximum capacity, as Muhammad Ali was talking about, like the police, the military. But we're also seeing the rise of religious nationalisms. All of these derive on very particular moments in colonial history where people came to think of themselves in and through the terms that were being introduced for the ease of colonial governance. 
So going back to something that Muhammad Ali was talking about, Gandhi, for example, and his turn to tradition, and especially a Hindu tradition in order to frame Indian nationalism, right? Whereby he insidiously sort of introduced Hinduism into the spirit of what is Indian nationalism. Even that turn to what is tradition defined in a position to what may be seen as Western or European at that particular point in time. So the presence of Europe in South Asia at that particular point creates not only institutions, but institutions that are backed by these understandings of who is who and what is what. And I think these epistemic framings that underlie the institutional and infrastructures and institutions that authoritarianism both wrestles with, but also relies on today in South Asia, I think it's sort of important to note these knowledge production practices and how they also continue to be part of the post-colonial legacy and how a lot of state practices still continue to produce more and more knowledges in these very same veins. That's something that I wanted to add to this. Thank you very much, Swetha, for a really brilliant lay down of the history and the religious politics and how they shape authoritarianism in the Indian subcontinent today. Muhammad Ali, I want to pull on that thread could you give us more of a background on how these authoritarian states or these authoritarian tendencies in the Indian subcontinent interact with religio-political movements in both India and Pakistan? Absolutely. I might allude a little bit in my, because I, I want to make this a dialogue, but I want to, I mean, there's enough to talk about on the Pakistani side. And, you know, it, it's quite interesting, you know, there was this dilemma when the country was being, the demand for Pakistan was being articulated, known as the two-nation theory. So fine, if we can't get along with the Hindus and the Hindus are not being accommodative to a Muslim minority, which was itself had arrived in the Indian subcontinent on the waves of conquest and subsequent empire building. So, but this, of course, was the various differences between the creation of the Muslim empire and the a lot of the conquests that were subsequently taking place were Muslims wrangling power away from other Muslims in the Indian subcontinent. So it was distinct from the, from the colonial experiment that was subsequently implemented in the Indian subcontinent. However, when this kind of demand for a Muslim nation, you know, this fueled by fear or vested interest, this idea of creating a distinct Muslim state, which is not overwhelmed by a Hindu majority uh, within the Indian subcontinent, when that idea came to the fore, there was resistance within. So, for instance, a lot of the religio-political parties of the time, religio-political scholars, were kind of opposed to the idea of creating a separate nation state, because in their articulation of the Muslim identity, the notion of Ummah reigned supreme. And, and the notion of Ummah is uh, transnational, right? Because it, it, it's based on the idea that the message of God is universal and for everyone, and it's not bound by a, a specific territory. So for them, there, there wasn't uh, really a great demand for the creation of Pakistan, and particularly in how it was unfolding and how it unfolded, we see that in retrospect, right? I mean, there's, besides 
Bangladesh that split away. I mean, even if you look at India itself, we're talking what um, 150 million or so Muslims still residing in India today. And when Pakistan broke away, there was this sense that the religio-political parties really hadn't backed the idea of Pakistan and used to speak about Kaide Azam, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, Kaide Azam being sort of the, the leader of the nation. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who's like a Lincoln-trained uh, lawyer with a British accent and British mannerisms, and the ways in which they spoke of him, I'm talking about the Muslim leaders, uh, the religio-political ones, was in very unfavorable terms. But subsequent to uh, Pakistan having become a political reality and with the bloodshed that, that ensued in the partition of the Indian subcontinent and when many of them came into Pakistan, then they had this imperative to recreate themselves. In that recreation, they started eroding the idea of Pakistan being a secular state. So Muhammad Ali Jinnah had said that the state has no business with where you worship and how you worship. But the central ideas started being eroded. Around this time, we see Pakistan being declared an Islamic republic and then increasing antagonism towards sort of the minorities like the Ahmadis, framing them as being colonial sympathizers, undermining their claim of Muslimhood. And, and, you know, that movement gained traction to the extent that Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, the prominent, fiery political leader, and here we get into the 1970s now, uh, right? I mean, he declares them, the Ahmadis, to be non-Muslims, right? Which was a big victory for the religio-political, like the Jamaat-e-Islami, etc. Then we move into the 1980s, and there's the geopolitical aspect, right? I mean, this is the, the time with Saudi money and American blessing. Ziaul Haq positions himself as Ziaul Haq being the military general who deposes and hangs Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, the civilian leader, the prime minister of Pakistan, right? And he then, for 10 years, gets a lot of support in basically helping organize and train and militarizing this notion of jihad. And, and this is, of course, the time when Ronald Reagan famously called them the, the holy warriors, right, and, and had many of them visit the White House as well. Right. And, and this is when they were doing the, the, the jihad against the, the Soviet infidel. So then we see it's around this time that you start seeing term of the military mullah alliance being coined. And then that had, of course, tremendous implications for the sociocultural fabric within Pakistan. And this is, of course, also happening, the rise of the Obandi and their affiliation with the sort of Salafi school. It's also being exacerbated, then the sectarian strife within Pakistan is also being exacerbated by this proxy competition between Saudi Arabia and Iran, because, you know, by this time you've had the Irani revolution as well. We see 10 years of this, and even after the withdrawal of the Soviets by 1989, some of these, the, the militant actors, start being used allegedly by the Pakistani state to support the existing insurgency within Kashmir, Indian-held Kashmir. But that had continues to spin off and have, there's a lot of sectarian violence within the country and these, many of these sort of militant outfits, because they are performing this other function, are 
uh, are said to be tolerated by the Pakistani state. And then come post 9-11, we see another religio-political group come to the fore. And now these are the Bharelvis. And, and the Bharelvis were initially perceived to be like the more moderate Muslims. And, you know, again, ironically, come 9-11, we have another democratic prime minister having been deposed by another general, General Musharraf. And then he gets a long lease for his military regime, which again lasts a decade or so, because the 9-11 has happened in Pakistan uh, for good or bad decides to join, become frontline state in, in the war against terror. I mean, there's a lot of contention around that as well. It creates a lot of turbulence between Pakistan and the U.S. regarding Pakistan's role in the global war on terror and, and, and how it positioned itself in Afghanistan. But alongside that, we see an emphasis on trying to use the Bahelwi, the shine, uh, Sufi-loving uh, culture as the more moderate version of Islam, to the extent that some of, some of these groups like the Ahle Sunnat, I mean, even get <laughs> State Department funding, right, to come out and speak against this idea of, uh, of suicide bombing, because Islam frowns upon this idea of taking one's life, greatest gift by God. And But I think by a few years into using the Berelvis to push back against the Deobandis, we see the Berelvis also becoming, and of course, there's talk about the Deobandis, I don't mean, I mean, the, the Deoband is a religious school, right? But once talking about Deobandi-inspired militant groups, Again, with the Bharelvis, of course, there is a, a, a vast theological engagement of the Bharelvi school of thought within the Indian subcontinent, right? And we can't talk about all of them in this sense. But some of them operationalize and weaponize this notion of love for the prophet, right? I mean, this was, again, by the way, a colonial era rule to keep, you know, the Muslims and, and, and the Hindus and the Sikhs sort of, you know, um, to, to prevent uh, communal strife. And this was given teeth under the regime of Ziaul Haq in the 80s. And come post 9-11, the Bahraini start using this notion to the most uh, drastic thing that happens is that an adherent of the Bahraini school of thought, who's a bodyguard of the governor of the Punjab, who had spoken up against the use, this weaponization of blasphemy against this poor Christian woman who had, there's a problem of religious minorities on both sides and Christians with missionary work in the Indian subcontinent. You had a lot of the, the suppressed castes like being enticed by this idea of a new religion to escape uh, their marginalization, which unfortunately didn't occur on, on either side of the border. So nonetheless, you had this poor woman who was accused of blaspheming because there was a dispute over water sharing. She was barking, making brick and had been like uh, had been arrested and, and, uh, and there was a blasphemy case on her. And the governor of the Punjab, the largest province in Pakistan, speaks up and defends her and says he doesn't say anything about blasphemy itself, but he talks about the blasphemy rule and says that that needs to be modified because it's it's punitive and it's used to persecute minorities. And lo and behold, his own bodyguard shoots and kills him, who is supposed to be safeguarding the governor, kills him. 
that's when the international community becomes increasingly uncomfortable also with the increasingly violent Bareilly group. And subsequent to that, we have been still living with the rise of the Bareilly. So just recently, the Pakistani government, again, now democratically elected prime minister, has done a deal because after the sort of the, the killing of the governor, there's a lot of support for the bodyguard who kills him, right? I mean, while the state hangs him, right, there's a shrine built in his name and uh, gives genesis to the Terike Labek Pakistan, which is this revolves around this idea of protecting and respecting the prophet and the sanctity of the prophet and takes this stance uh, of defending the prophet not only within Pakistan, but elsewhere. So with the Charlie Hebdo controversy, I mean, they have been demanding and they've been doing long marches and protesting and trying to pressurize the Pakistani state to expel the French ambassador. It's created a lot of pressure on the Pakistani state and they have actually capitulated and conceded to this demand and released the, the current leader of the TLP, the original leader died and now his son is in charge and they released him from jail. They have decided to debate the issue of you know, whether to expel the French uh, ambassador or not. So this is where things are currently. So it's not that the Deobandi groups have dissipated, right? And then there's no sectarian violence, there is, right? I mean, so we still have, I mean, we even have the TTP, the Terike uh, Taliban Pakistan, which I can perhaps talk about a bit later, but we have this new entrant into this kind of violent religio-political space with the rise of the of the Terike Labek Pakistan and, and the Pakistani state's capitulation to them. This is a very interesting story that you've unfolded for us, Muhammad Ali. Shweta, I want to turn to you and ask you, you know, as we have this rise in the religio-political movements in Pakistan and how it impacts sort of the internal dynamics of Pakistan, I can't but help wonder that it, that also had some influence as well in India. And could you walk us through how religio-political movements in India have led to where we are today. Happy to elaborate on that. I think the religio-political movements in India, the most hegemonic one is the Hindu nationalist movement and its claim that India ought to be a Hindu nation. And that claim is based on a supposition that in the past, before the coming of Muslims and before the coming of European powers, India was a Hindu nation. To me, what this really points to is the fact that in order for any form of authoritarianism, but also here in particular, this sort of religious authoritarianism to take root, it is almost important to narrate history in a very particular way, which leads to very particular omissions, which leads to very particular and convenient reductions of a much more broader history. So in a certain sense, what really happened will have to be reduced, reframed, and told in a very particular way in order to support the claims that India was a Hindu nation at some particular point in time. So the reason I say this is if we were going to go back in time, as Muhammad Ali just did with Pakistan's history in Indian history, India's history cannot be narrated as simply as 
that was Hinduism and then Islam came or and then Christianity came because all of this assumes two things. First of all, it assumes that Hinduism, Islam, Christianity are all static discourses and, you know, they are very well bounded discourses that just come and go. They sort of deny this rich history of dialogue between these discourses and other religions in India. They also don't allude to at all the internal ways in which these religions have evolved through revivals, framings and reconfigurations over time. So the very idea that today religious politics in India can claim that there was a Hindu nation is actually locked up in a lot of very reductive narrations of history. Heading back into pre-colonial India just for a second and looking at the scales of religiosity there, it would be very hard to find a very well-bounded object called Hinduism in the very first place. There were so many schools of Hindu practice all across India. And Islam came over a long period of time, unlike what is easily assumed in the public domain and the public sphere across South Asia. Not only were there military conquests, which were elemental in bringing Islam over, but there were also a lot of trade relations between pre-colonial West Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia. A lot of Arabic traders uh, would come, and I think this is very well documented in Indian Ocean studies, A lot of Arabic traders would come from Egypt and Yemen and all these places, dock in South Asia, especially what is South India today, move up to Gujarat, to the region of Kutch, all the way to some of the seashore areas in Pakistan. They would go around Sri Lanka and the Cape there to land on the east coast in India, go all the way up, Orissa, West Bengal, Bangladesh. People landed and also, you know, continued their journey through land. And the other entry points, you had the caravan traders, the Silk Route was open, so there was always a lot of trade via land from West Asia into these regions. People came through Central Asia, came through the mountain passes in the Himalayas and came down to India. So there's a lot of movement into India, in and out of India, that happened beyond what can be narrated through a history of military alone. So first of all, the sort of rich ways in which people, goods, discourses and everything moved in this region, right? And I'm I'm sort of now only curtailing the telling of my own history to just West Asia and South Asia. But if you actually look at how South Asia was also sort of in dialogue with East Asia, Southeast Asia, you get this sort of rich history of movement in these places. So when there's such a rich history of movement of people, and, and when we talk about moving, uh, people moving, we're also talking about people moving not just in the public domain, right, but also in the private domain, people intermarrying, new ethnicities coming up because of people intermarrying and, and things like that. We need to situate the development of religion in this sort of rich history. Nobody just brought Islam to India the way in which a lot of people, especially the Hindu nationalists, will tell you in a very reductive way. Strains and schools of Islam came to India. And I hear when I say India, I mean the Indian subcontinent came to South Asia, I should say, um, and developed over time within South Asia also. So it's not an outsider religion. It is a religion that has developed in dialogue with the other religions that were being practiced in that particular point in time in those regions. So beyond Hinduism, you have other nameable religions like Buddhism, you have Jainism. Sikhism developed there because of dialogues between these religions. And also because of this rich history of trade and exchange, Christianity was already there in India well before European powers became colonizing forces in this region. 
There were Jews in India. There were Parsis in India. So this region is very rich in cultural exchange. And as part of cultural exchange, religious exchanges happen. So if you try to take this very broad, pluralistic history and try to bundle it into very simplistic narratives where for the sake of governance, you want to demarcate a particular area of land as Hindu, a particular area of land as Muslim, I think you're actually naturally going to run into a lot of problems. And on the one hand, some of this happened, as I was mentioning in response to your earlier question, because of the convenience of Europe in governance, right? So Europe arrives in this very rich pluralistic region, and it is important for them to classify it, categorize it, reorganize it in a way so that they can extract their resources, they can get the most out of this region for themselves. So what we see is a history that's playing out, that's being disrupted by colonial forces that are then reorganizing this for the sake of their own purposes. And then they leave, and then we're left with these post-colonial legacies. And so I think... The telling of history isn't as continuous as one would want it to be. The histories of religions have been narrated by these different forces who wanted to control the governance of this region in their own convenient terms at different points in time. So I think what you see today as sort of the religio-political authoritarianism in India also derives its strength by narrating the very rich history of this place in a very reductive way that is convenient to itself. So in that sense, I think returning to the question of Hindu dominance within India, it definitely derives very much on the Hindu nationalist organizations, not all of which are political parties. There are lots of civil organizations in India which believe in and strengthen the purpose of Hindu nationalism. And then, of course, they have political wings which contest in elections, form governments and all of that. So if you look at the whole network of Hindu nationalism in India, I think it derives very strongly from this understanding, this very reductive understanding that India used to be this Hindu country and then outsider religions came and disrupted the pre-existing cultures. And now if we throw them out, somehow we can go back to the kind of glory that in the Hindu India once was able to manifest and things like that. And the reason this kind of narrative becomes so believable is because once you take a broad pluralistic history and sort of break it down into easy categories, then I think the, we are actually making way for reductive stories to have power and to have power over people's imaginations and to allow them to believe this kind of political narrative. And I think you see the same thing in Sri Lanka, actually. You see that in terms of the way in which Buddhist nationalism has started to dominate the public imagination in Sri Lanka. It has a lot to do, again, with sort of narrating the history of Sri Lanka as a Buddhist history, Whereas the history of Sri Lanka, once again, just as the history of India or the history of Pakistan, the history of Bangladesh, Nepal, Bhutan, any of the countries in South Asia is actually almost always religiously, uh, religiously extremely pluralistic. And religions, although they were always entangled with state practices, they were not necessarily the reasons why kings used to fight with each other. 
if you actually read the history in the Indian subcontinent, the number of wars that must have happened on the basis of religion will be much less than the number of wars that happened because of control over resources, control over ports, maybe even family feuds, actually. So it's a very complex history. So to tell it completely as a history of a religion is in, in part a smart move on the part of these religious political movements. In part, I think it is not even that much of an intended move as opposed to even they think that that is the history of the place. And that is because of how many times that reductive history has gone around. So I think one cannot look at the authoritarianism that is there in the South Asian context without actually being attentive to the ways in which the way we narrate the past structures the way in which we come to understand the present. So that is where I would situate the broader story of Hindu nationalism in India. But if you were going to look at more recent histories, I think there are two trends that I would call attention to. One is the secular parties in India, just as in an earlier point in this conversation, Muhammad Ali was pointing out how Gandhi perhaps insidiously read Hinduism into Indian nationalism. The secular parties in India, which are supposedly pluralistic and open to diversity and open to the presence of diverse religions in India, actually still, I think, at least implicitly, if not explicitly, continue to consider Hinduism as some sort of original religion of the region. And at least in the public discourse, they continue to perpetuate that. I would say that they play a role alongside the more Hindu nationalist parties in co-creating the idea that India could easily be a Hindu country. And then on the other hand, you have the Hindu nationalist parties who, unlike the secular parties, have a very strong belief that India must be nothing but a Hindu nation. The Hindu nationalist parties are, I think, very keen on not just structuring the present, but structuring the future of the country as a Hindu nationalist regime. Thank you very much, Swetha. And I think this is a very good segue into the sort of the big question that I want to ask you both, because based on this discussion, it does seem, at least to an outside observer, outside the Indian subcontinent and outside of South Asia, that both India and Pakistan, because of religio-political movements and the impact that these religio-political movements are having on domestic politics, of both India and Pakistan, that this pressure is building towards both countries coming towards a significant altercation between the two of them, which would obviously have massive transnational effects, both in that region itself, but far beyond, and would put the United States in a particularly difficult position because of its longstanding friendship with both India and Pakistan. So I'd like to get both of your thoughts on how can India and Pakistan move away from a path toward what could be significant conflict because of these religio-political issues. And if you were both advising the Biden administration on how to navigate the treacherous terrain of the India-Pakistan issue, how would you do it? Muhammad Ali, start with you. It's a huge question. And I think that since we are aiming for a for a layered approach, I don't have the easiest answer for you, but I do think that there's room for 
reflexivity on all, all sides. I think even the US and I think the international community need to realize the kind of influence that they've been having in this region and are continuing to exert, which is not entirely beneficial. But before I get into that, I mean, I'd like to, and I think um, it picks up on some of the stuff that we've been discussing earlier and Shweta was talking about, I think that first of all, we, before we talk about how tensions are being exacerbated across the border, I mean, I, I think the, the biggest stress right now of this the religious political rise and intolerance is within those countries. This has been going on for a while. I mean, recall that Mahatma Gandhi was himself assassinated by someone with, with sympathies with the RSS. And the RSS is the spiritual fountainhead for the ruling BJP in India. There's a lot of encroachment of intellectual space, of um, uh, encroachment of the more moderate, even culturally and religiously Hindu uh, communities within India. You know what to say, say about the religious minorities like the Sikhs and the, uh, and, and, and the Muslims and the Christians. In the case of Pakistan, similarly, lingering sectarian, that rift between Shia and Sunni, and now with this weaponization of blasphemy, all that it takes is people to say that this person has blasphemed. It, it's not only against uh, the religious minority. There's been the, a, a Muslim student was lynched in Mardan a couple of years ago on campus for alleged blasphemy, which subsequently was found not to have been the case uh, even. So I think the first tension is within, but of course there, there is going back to the partition of the subcontinent, I mean the carnage within the Punjab, between the Sikh and the, and the Muslim, between the Hindus and the Muslim. I mean, writers like Sadat Hassan Manto and all have written beautifully about the tragedy that occurred where these communities that had been living together since centuries, you know, the, these with also these more syncretic ideas of, of sort of, you know, mysticism, etc., and this communal camaraderie that they had built over centuries was that that social fabric was torn. Now, in recent years, I mean, Ayodhya, uh, the demolition of the Ayodhya mosque, a historical mosque, and this is, this is the rise of the BJP, where they went in believing that this is the birthplace of Ram, and they tore down that, that historical mosque. And then that led to a lot of communal violence. And then that had repercussions across the border. And in Pakistan, you had, there's a minuscule Hindu and Sikh minority, right? And But, but the desecration of those, of the temples and places of worship, there is that lingering threat. And I mean, the, the Pakistani government, I mean, of tiptoes around ideas of religious tolerance within the country, but, uh, you know, keeps pointing fingers at, at the rise of the Hinditwa ideology in India, and is quite disconcerted. And here, you know, comes in the, the US and other places. Now, if you look at the United States Commission for International Religious Freedom, which is a government mandated body, which comes up with a list of countries of particular concern, for a few years now has been talking about putting India on that list too, alongside Pakistan and of course China and Russia. Secretary Pompeo, when he was advised by US, US staff to do that, uh, refused to do so, which then undermines the legitimacy of that kind of a ranking. 
So it's not only a matter of the historical past and colonialism. I think that there is there continues to be, besides the geostrategic engagement now with the great game and the tightening, the, the US-India embrace and uh, the Pakistan-China embrace, right? How that's exacerbating tensions. And then morality, of course, becomes a cudgel in that process. So people say that President Trump did more for the Uyghur Muslims than perhaps any other American president or, or Western leader. But of course, he was doing that at the same time that there was a lot of anti-Muslim rhetoric within the US. But he was doing that to, to go after China. And Pakistan talks about the Islamophobia and, and the threat that the Muslims face, but you will not hear Pakistani policymakers make any statements on the situation in China. So you have these kind of blind spots, and I think it's important to recognize those blind spots, even internationally, and, and to recognize this geostrategic lopsided approach. And I think that is the basic minimum but I think even a more deeper reflection is required, you know, because when you think about, we're talking about colonialism and post-colonial legacies, if we look at the impact of neoliberalism on shining India, right, and, and sort of the hand-in-glove approach of, of the Indian strongman, authoritarianish state and, and its emphasis on economic development and who gets marginalized in that process. And similarly, on the Pakistani side, we have a room for a lot more reflection by Western powers and their engagement with these areas of the world. I mean, the Indian subcontinent, for instance, I mean, we're talking about a sizable chunk of the world's population, uh, lingering animosity, uh, nuclear weapons. And then we have the, the, the great game, which is hyping up the hysteria and fueling an arms race in the region at the same time. I think that basically it, it's, it's precisely discussions like these. I mean, I don't know how, how much takeaway the policymakers would get out of this process, but I, I think that there, there's certainly this deeper reflection is merited all sides. Thank you very much, Muhammad Ali. And I find that very interesting how you link together all these global issues, including, I must say, a nightmare scenario of potential nuclear conflicts with the transnational trends that have to do with identity and politics. Shweta, what is your perspective on the Indian side for these issues? Thanks, Nick. I'm just going to actually re-emphasize some of the points that Muhammad Ali raised, because I think with India right now, one of the major problems is the rise in internal intolerance, which again stems from a lot of things that we have been talking about before. But on the other hand, I think in the much more international or global domain, India still has this aura of being this cultural, spiritual center. So I think a lot of people struggle with seeing um, or with reconciling their notion of India as this place of peace and nonviolence and Gandhi and all of those things with the kind of uh, images of religious intolerance that are coming out of India. So I do think that this juncture, those two images produce actually does play a role in the way in which international forces are able to perceive what is happening in India. So I think being attentive actually to what is going on in the moment 
and sort of setting aside those frameworks of what one supposes this place's sort of religious, spiritual legacy to be, and to actually see the forms that the current political religious movements have taken would actually be very beneficial in uh, to answer your question in one way. And the other part of your question was actually uh, referring to, you know, the friendship between U.S. and Pakistan and India and sort of the long-standing friendship. And one thing that I would say is that, yes, there is a long-standing friendship between the U.S. and Pakistan, the U.S. and India, but also this friendship has been shaped very much by America's own imperialist interests since uh, after the Second World War, especially as uh, shaped by the Cold War and the the sort of um, long-term frictions with the USSR and, of course, in the post-Cold War scenario, the rise of China, as Muhammad Ali was already pointing to. So I think if the Biden administration would like to do something different, they would have to re-examine, I think, not just South Asia in terms of South Asia, but actually sort of rethink how South Asia has been taken up within the context of U.S. international global policies, or what forms of politics have shaped these friendships between the U.S. and India and the uh, U.S. and Pakistan. And if the U.S. is going to mediate both in terms of settling certain internal disputes within India and Pakistan, especially in relation to religious intolerance, but also disputes between India and Pakistan, then it may actually be very necessary for the U.S. to re-examine its own stance and sort of rethink lingering effects of Cold War policies and also the effects of uh, policies that came up in the context of 9-11 in the South Asian context. And I think, in a way, this is not as difficult as it seems because we have so much research published from universities across the U.S. on South Asia, and we have so many organizations that are run by South Asian Americans in the U.S. that are actually writing very avidly about the problems of narrating India's and and broadly also South Asia's history in very particular ways in sort of allowing this history to legitimize uh, certain religio-political authoritarian movements within these countries. So I think it's really important to listen to what uh, people are are already saying, and especially a lot of them are South Asian Americans who are writing about and talking about these issues. So as an example, I would say under the Trump regime, we had this event, Howdy Modi, where Modi was welcomed with great pomp and show. And there were a lot of protests at that particular point to such a such a uh, such an event taking place in the United States at a time when the same regime was really so oppressive to a lot of Indians in India. So I think paying attention to all these sort of transnational movements, which are calling attention to these issues as they unfold, would actually be really the most interesting, but also the most impactful thing I think that this government can do. I think it will also help build alliances for the future, which are not grounded in imperialist attitudes and policies, but actually are much more grounded in practices of solidarity. Thank you very much, Shweta, and very practical and purposeful policy suggestions for the Biden administration and for a rising generation of U.S. policymakers, especially because, as you both have mentioned, and we all know India and Pakistan are rising powers in this world, 
in so much of the future course of human history in the 21st century will be determined by what happens in the Indian subcontinent and South Asia. I want to thank you both, Shweta and Muhammad Ali, for your excellent insights into this most pressing question of state resilience and fragility and the rise and specter of authoritarianism and religio-political extremism in South Asia and the Indian subcontinent. Thank you and all the best.